Amen. You can be seated. Our preschoolers, you guys can make your way out to the back, head to your class. Teachers should be out there in the hallway. Yep, see them back there. If you're staying in the room with us, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians. Take out a copy of God's Word and do so. If you did not bring a Bible this morning, I would encourage you to find one close to you. I'm sure you have a friend nearby who would not mind you looking off of their Bible. Um, if, if you don't have anybody near you, I would encourage you to get out a phone, find a Bible app, or many of them. Uh, we'll be preaching out of the ESV this morning, um, Philippians 2, as was read this morning, 19 through 30. And if all else fails, the passages will be on the screen behind me. But I would like for your eyes to be on this text. You know, it is really strange the things that you remember from your childhood, and as parents, we stress all the time about creating great memories for our kids. We really can't control what they remember. It's so odd the things you remember. I, one thing that sticks out in my mind about my childhood, and this is strange, but I, I remember how my dad would talk to his friends on the phone. And I know that's not strange for, for those of us who grew up in that era, but that's just less common now. I mean, my dad, you know, we had a landline, we didn't have cell phones, um, but the, the phone would ring. I used to love to just run and answer the phone. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world to get to. Anybody else like that, just by the way, as a kid, just to answer the phone? It was cool. You didn't know who it was, you know, we didn't have the caller ID, you had no clue, you just a mystery every time. And so you answer the phone, I would answer it, hello? And uh, every single time I'd hear this voice, Keith there, Keith there, like that. And I'd be like, yeah, it's Ruder, talk to him. That's it. Every single time, it's Ruder. Talk to him. Not, can I talk to him? Talk to him. Like that as a statement, you know, what's about to happen. And I just put the phone down, call my dad, and he would talk. And they would sit there. They would sit. It was in the kitchen. There was a little hutch we had there and the little chair and the phone was there. And he would sit there and just talk to his friend. And, and they would talk for, you know, sometimes not that long, 10, 15 minutes, other times 20, 30. Other times he would talk to them for a long time. And they weren't business partners. You know, they didn't even work at the same, they were both teachers, but they didn't work at the same school. Um, they played golf together a lot. So most of the things they talked about was golf and, you know, just how things were. It was really just nothing, just shooting the breeze. They were just talking. And, but they were friends and that's why they did that. And they still are friends to this day. Something that's easy to overlook about the letter to the Philippians from the Apostle Paul is that Philippians is a friendship letter. It's a friendship letter. And when I say that, it, it means that in the style of ancient friendship letters, ancient friendship letters, it was a thing. People wrote friendship letters. This has all the hallmarks of an ancient friendship letter. And Paul has devoted a lot of time assuring the Philippians of a few things his current condition, his state of mind, his future plans, his hopes and dreams, both for himself and for them. It's the type of stuff that you talk about with friends. And now if you, if you read Philippians more like a friendship letter and less like a theological treatise, you'll be able to pick up on the notes of friendship throughout this letter. But in Philippians 2, 19 through 30, Friendship is especially highlighted. 
And I don't think that Paul was trying to show us or teach us something about friendship, like as if he was thinking 2,000 years into the future and he was saying, oh, they're going to be these churches and they're going to read what I'm about to write right here and they're going to learn a good lesson about friendship. That's not, I don't believe that's what Paul had in mind when he wrote this, but I think that what we see from what Paul wrote in these verses does teach us a lot about friendship. It's just there. And we can learn from it. Paul is once again, he's done this a few times in the letter, he's once again expressing a desire to hear from the Philippians. He cares about them. One might could say he was worried about them, that he, he cared about their growth and their progress in the faith. And he shares here that he's going to be sending two mutual friends ahead of what he hopes to be his, his own return. He hopes to return Physically himself, if you remember, Paul is currently in prison. He is in Rome and he is in jail and there's no way for him to leave. He's awaiting trial and he's hopeful that he'll get a favorable sentence and he'll be able to eventually leave and return to the Philippians. But before he does that, he's going to send these two guys back to them. He's sending Timothy to gather a report of the spiritual progress of the Philippians and he's sending Epaphroditus on what will be a return journey to Philippi. Now, Epaphroditus was the one, we're going to see later in the letter, he was the one who actually brought the gifts to Paul, which prompted this letter. He was the one who was sent from the Philippian church to Paul with a financial gift. And it's most likely that he returned to Philippi with this letter. That's that's most likely what happened. He, He was a member of the church at Philippi, and so he was known by them. He was well known. Timothy help plant the church at Philippi alongside Paul. Sometimes when Paul or when anyone else in this era would send messengers like this, it was necessary for them to commend these men. Like, Let me tell you a little bit about these guys. You're gonna, these guys are going to show up and they're going to have a message from me or a gift from me or a letter from me, and I need you to know a little bit about them so that you know you can trust them. And so you can trust these guys because of you know, X, Y, Z, whatever the case. The difference here, which makes this commendation really odd, is that Timothy and Epaphroditus were not strangers to the Philippian church. I mean, if, when they read this, they would be like, oh, that's true, Paul. You got that right. And actually, something you didn't uh, mention about Timothy is this. This is also true about him. They knew these men really well. Based on the language of this passage, they were good friends. So why does Paul take the time to highlight the exemplary character of Timothy and Epaphroditus? Well, the simplest explanation is that Paul is still seeking to encourage the potentially weary, maybe even divided Philippians. And he's encouraging them with the comfort of friendship. He's just finished exhorting them to pursue unity through Christ-centered humility. That glorious passage we saw in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. He just showed them the humility of Jesus and he exhorted them to model that humility in their own relationships. And he's even shared in previous parts of this letter, how they can face persecution and suffering with joy and how they can even face death with a strange gladness in their heart. He's encouraged them theologically. Now he's going to encourage them practically. 
He's going to say, look, look at Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus. These men are examples to follow. But more than that, Timothy and Epaphroditus miss you. You see how he's encouraging them here? I'm sending Timothy and Epaphroditus back to you. But Epaphroditus, in my time with him here, he has been longing for you. He misses you. Timothy, there's no one I know that cares more about you than Timothy. He misses you. He wants to see you. I can't wait for you to be reunited with these two men because of the joy and the rapture that will be there when that reunion happens. They want to hear from you. They want to see you. By highlighting friendship, Paul comforts the Philippians by reminding them that they aren't alone in their suffering. And then he takes another angle to push them away from division and toward unity. We're going to see this morning that Christian friendship is a deep source of Christian joy. Our joy is greatly increased by godly friendships. And I want to convince you of a couple things this morning. I want to convince you that you need friendships. And that's something that I think has, has definitely waned on us. We, we don't see the value of friendships the way that maybe we used to years and years ago. But I want you to be convinced. If you leave with nothing else this morning than to say, yeah, I need a friend, then, I, then we will have accomplished something. I also want to show you what you should be looking for in a friend and what type of friend you should be. So, so first, we're going to look at the necessity of friendship. Second, we're going to look at the virtues of friendship that we find in this passage. And the last thing I want you to do, because depending on where you are right now, it may be really encouraging to hear these virtues, and it may be really crushing to hear these virtues because you're like, I don't have a single friend like this, and I'm not like this. So the last thing we're going to do to wrap all that up is we're going to look at the paradigm of friendship that was set by Jesus. Essentially, we're going to look at the ultimate friend and how Jesus' friendship with us helps us in our friendship with others. In this passage, Paul is weaving together a beautiful tapestry of friendship between himself, Timothy, Epaphroditus, the Philippian church, and he highlights those three things. So let's look at them one by one. First, the necessity of friendship. We're asking the question, why do we need friends? So this is for kids in the room, students in the room, adults in the room. Because I think that kids and students recognize the importance of friendship. And as adults or as parents, we recognize the importance of friendship for our kids. But then we neglect it for ourselves. And we think, well, if we're, as long as we're married, we don't really need a friend. My spouse is my best friend. And that's all you really need in the world is just one best friend. Why do I need other friends? Well, let's, let's see. The first thing, the first reason that you need friends is that you were designed for friendship. You, you were created for it. I mean, why, why, why do the birds fly? Why do the fish swim? And what, what do you mean? They were made to do that. They were made to do those things. You were made for friendship. Genesis 2.18. It is not good that the man should be alone. When God created Eve, he says it's not good that the man should be alone. This isn't just about, about marriage or procreation. It's, this is about relationships. We, we were created for community. Humans need friendship in order to flourish, and we see that biblically. We also see this, and non-believers see this as well. Uh, secular human psychology pr has proven this too. As I was reading up on different things this week, I came across one of the longest-running human studies on happiness. 
It's something that's been going on for 80 years, a study has, okay? So it, was, it began in 1939, and it was uh, the, the Harvard study of adult development uh, conducted the study on happiness. And they started collecting data on the lives of 268 Harvard graduates and 456 Boston men. And so for, for uh, 80 or so years, the researchers, they've been accumulating, putting together all this data from physical exams and, and medical histories and, and interviews and questionnaires. They've been gathering all this data. And their goal was to uncover, and this is a quote from them, from the study, what psychosocial variables and biological processes from earlier in life predict health and well-being later in life. So what, what is in, in place here when you're younger that leads to a happier, better, uh, more whole life later? Okay, that was, that was the goal. And the results were actually really simple and maybe a little surprising. At the end of the day, the only factor they could identify to correlate with happiness was the quality of their human relationships. Close friendships, family connections, and marriages surpassed other variables like social class, genetics, IQ, money, fame, any of the things that we typically use as indicators of happiness. Close friendships, family connections, and marriages surpassed all of that. The people who had the most satisfaction in their friendships, I thought this was so interesting, the people who had the most satisfaction in their friendships at age 50 were the healthiest and happiest at age 80. We, and so that reality, that study confirms this truth that we find, this ancient truth that we find in Scripture, that humans were created for relationships. You were made to have friends. And, and just like a fish out of water, when you don't have friends, it becomes tough to live. Okay, so we need friendship because we're made for it. Second, we need friendship because we are lonelier than we've ever been as a society, as a culture, as a people. We are lonelier than we've ever been. I, I, again, I read up on some research this week, and uh, a lot of folks are saying that Americans are facing a loneliness epidemic. Based on certain factors, they consider 60% of Americans to be lonely. 60%. One study I saw said 54, one said 58, over half. Over half of Americans are considered by different factors to be lonely. In a lot of that research, I saw that younger people are statistically lonelier than older people. Men are statistically lonelier than women. And loneliness is not just something that's like, man, I just I hate, I hate that I am lonely. Or, or even for those of us who are like, what a gift I get to be alone today. No people don't get to talk, don't have to talk to anybody. You just feel like that's really good for you. Loneliness is actually really damaging to our health, our mental health, and surprisingly, our physical health. Loneliness is linked to a shorter life expectancy in the same way that smoking and alcoholism is. Here's some effects of loneliness that I, I saw from some of this research sleep disorders, weight problems 
substance use, neurological disorders, stress, anxiety, depression, even kidney problems. And again, in all of this research, the, all of this research, the, the number one source of loneliness was a lack of meaningful friendship. A lack of meaningful friendship. We haven't valued friendship and we're suffering for it. We've neglected friendship in pursuit of other things and, and we're suffering the consequences. We need to admit this up front. Loneliness is deadly. It's damaging to our mental health, our physical health. But friendship lifts us up. One of the best quotes I've ever read on friendship comes from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle said this, the world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in the world is a friend. Friendship halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. It's J.C. Ryle. In friendship, our sorrows are cut in half, our burdens are half as heavy, and our joys are doubled. And so in, while we're facing maybe a loneliness epidemic and we're prone to loneliness and it's, it's harder maybe for us to make friends, we need to recognize here that friendship can lift us up from all of these damaging effects of loneliness. That's why we need it. And one last thing I want to point out here, why we need friends, our friends shape us. Okay, another way to say that, if we were made for friendship, our friendship makes us. Our friends make us. The influence of friends cannot be understated. And, and you, a lot of us probably know this from experience. And in the moment, you have friends and you have no idea that you're being shaped into the likeness. It's like our boys have started to measure themselves on one of the walls in our houses. I think it's because they just like writing on the wall and that's, you know, something we might allow them to do. But they're like measuring themselves. And you remember doing that as a kid. You would see how tall you were and then like the next day you would do it again. And you would see how, you know, and it's like, oh, I think I'm a little bit taller today or whatever. And you're like, oh, no, it doesn't really work like that. You don't, you're not going to be able to see that you're growing taller uh, well, one day to the next. In our friendships, you're not going to be able to see from one day to the next that you're being shaped into each other's likeness and that you're shaping and forming one another. And those can be good influences and those can be bad influences. But friendship is important because on our own, it's really difficult by yourself to become anything good. You need friends to help you, good, godly friends to help you grow in the likeness of Jesus. You know that classic saying, if your friend asks you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? You know, you've heard that before. No, probably not. But if my friend jumped off the bridge in front of me, I mean, I, it'd be hard to be the guy who didn't, who just stood back, you know. Our friends influence us and they shape us in really formative ways. And we need other people to help us become what we should be. So for the sake of living up to our created purpose, for the sake of our mental, emotional, and physical health, and for the sake of growing in the likeness of Jesus, we need good and godly friends. Now we need to consider the virtues of friendship and dive into this passage. The necessity of friendship leads us to ask two questions. What should we look for in a friend? And maybe more importantly, how can we be the type of friend who increases the joy and positively impacts other people? 
All right. Now, through these commendations from Paul of Timothy and Epaphroditus, he gives us basically five virtues that we can identify here. Five virtues of friendship. And we should expect these virtues of our friends, and we should strive to embody these virtues to be good friends to others. Five virtues. You know you have a good friend when these five things are present. You know you will be a good friend when these five things are present. Affection, compassion, faithfulness, companionship, and sacrifice. Don't worry, we'll go through them. The first, affection. Affection. If we're honest with ourselves, many of our relationships are actually driven by mere toleration. You know what I'm talking about? Most of the people that you encounter on a daily basis, you just kind of tolerate them, right? It doesn't mean that you hate them or don't want to be around them. You just, you just kind of tolerate them. You, you know, they're there and you talk to them and you're, you're getting really good at small talk or you're not and things are just awkward. But, you know, you, just, you don't get too close. You don't let them too close to you. You don't get too close to them. You're just kind of around each other and, and you tolerate. That's, that's a lot of our relationships. That's not friendship. Friendship requires more than this. You can't be a good and godly friend by merely tolerating other people, keeping them at a distance, going no further than small talk. Friendship actually requires you to feel affection for other people. Look at the example of Epaphroditus. Look at verse 26. In verse 26, Paul has said in verse 25, thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. And then jump down to verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He longed for them. He yearned for them. He wanted to be near them. He wanted to be with them. He missed them. His heart was soft and warm toward them. And he was anxious. He was even distressed that they had even heard that he was ill. Have you felt that way before about someone that's really close to you? It's like on the one hand, if you, get, if you get really sick or if you have bad news to share, on the one hand, of course you want your closest friends to know what's going on. On the other hand, don't you kind of feel like this little hesitation, like, I don't want, I, I hate that I know they're going to feel so upset about this. They're going to they're gonna be so heartbroken by this, and I, I'm distressed at the thought of that even. That's a close friend. That, that's somebody that you have genuine affection for. And Epaphroditus had genuine affection for the Philippian church. Friends are emotionally tied to each other in this way. Our pain becomes the pain of our friends. Our joy and celebration becomes their joy and celebration. And we need relationships with people who are so emotionally invested in our lives. We need friends who love us and yearn for us and want to be with us. Does that not immediately increase and just build joy in your heart when you even think about the prospect of having someone in your life who just wants to be around you? They just want to be around you. They want to hang out. Not to always do something specific. I think one of the things that, that I struggle with in, in human relationships sometimes is that I feel like there are a lot of people who are just wanting things from me. Or I feel like my connection with this person is just an exchange. What can I give them? What can they give me? Friendship, the types of relationships that causes us to flourish and rejoice, it's just, we just hang out. Did you ever have friends like that growing up? Where you just 
go over to each other's houses after school and do a bunch of nothing. Just a bunch of nothing. Just sit around. You might play a video game. You might go run outside and play. You might prank call some people. I never did that. But, you know, you do, you do things like that. You're just around each other. You hang out. And we have those friendships when we're younger, and then we get older, and we're like, ah, that's just immature. It's not immature to have friends who just long for you, who want to be with you, who want to be around you, and we need these types of relationships. And I want you to notice something else. Paul presents no qualifiers for Epaphroditus' affection. He just longs for them. He doesn't say he longs for you because of how faithful he's heard that you've been. He wants to be back with you guys because, man, he heard the Spirit is moving in your life and he wants to see it and be a part of it. He just misses them. He just longs for them because of who they are. They're his friends. We need relationships like this. So a question for you to ask yourself, am I emotionally invested in the lives of my friends? Am I emotionally invested in their lives? Do I, do I care? Do I want to be with them? Do I want to be around them? Because we need it for friendship to flourish. Okay, so affection. Second, the second virtue of friendship we see here. Compassion. Compassion. We could also just say concern. We can even say interest, but compassion gets at the heart of it a little more. I want you to notice the genuine concern and care that Timothy had for the Philippians. So we got to go back up. we got to look at the example of Timothy. Look at verses 19 through 21 with me. So in these verses, we read this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Paul is simultaneously honoring Timothy and encouraging the Philippians. And both of those are rooted in the compassion of friendship. He says, out of everyone I know, I can't think of anyone who cares about you more than Timothy does. And that's why I want to send him to you. What a sweet reunion I know that will be for everyone involved. It will even bring me joy to hear a report from him. So, so notice that Paul is also drawing a comparison between Timothy and Jesus. Okay, so Timothy is essentially a flesh and blood picture of Christ and a model of the kind of humble life that Paul had been calling them to live. So back in verses 3 through 5, you remember of chapter 2? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he says, this is the mind of Christ. Okay, Timothy is described as having genuine concern for the Philippians. He's looking, he's more concerned for their interests, and, and, and he's more interested in them than he is his own interests. He says, uh, or Paul says that this is contrasted with those who seek after their own interests. So Timothy is unlike anyone else. Other people, they are just looking to their own interests, not the interests of Jesus. Timothy, on the other hand, is more concerned about you than anyone else. Friendship forces us to look outside of ourselves. True friends, according to Scripture, care more about others than themselves. They count others more significant than themselves. And you may have known friends like this, but we need friends who really believe listening is better than telling. 
We need friends who, who really believe that giving grace is better than getting even with other people. And we need friends who believe that being weak together is sweeter than trying to be really impressive. We need friends who grieve our losses. We need friends who celebrate our wins. We need friends who are interested in what's going on in our lives to be genuinely concerned. Joys are doubled, sorrows are halved when compassion characterizes our relationships. How much happier we would be if we had friends who were genuinely interested and invested in our lives to the point that our concerns became their concerns. Are you that type of friend? Are you genuinely concerned with the lives of other people? Or are, are you too obsessed with your own concerns? Do you care about what others are facing, how others are doing in their walk with Jesus? Are we concerned? Do we care? And that's the question for us. Am I genuinely interested in the lives of my friends? Okay, so affection, compassion, faithfulness now. Faithfulness. Next, right after this, Paul is applauding Timothy's proven worth his steadfast partnership in the gospel. He writes in verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Proven worth is important for friendship because a proven worth or a proven character creates trust. This is what Paul's essentially saying. You know Timothy, he's proven himself worthy to you. You can trust Timothy. This is, this is what's necessary in friendship, an integrity that can be counted on. You see, Timothy consistently counted others more significant than himself, which meant that he, as a friend, could be counted on. He had a time-tested character. And it's tough to be a good friend if we're flaky and unreliable. It's tough to be a good friend if we're consistently unpredictable. To be a godly friend requires steadfastness and faithfulness. Friends who are consistently reflecting Jesus will influence others to become like Jesus. These are the friends that we need. One of the best things that you have to offer your friends is just simple, ordinary, consistent, Christ-like character. That's the best thing you can offer your friends is just showing up every day and being like Jesus. That's the best thing you can offer them. So a question for us. Am I developing a track record of integrity and trustworthiness with my friends? Okay, next, the fourth thing, companionship. So affection, compassion, faithfulness, companionship. Timothy is shown that he was like a son to Paul. He was with him in gospel ministry. He was always there with him. Epaphroditus, we're going to see if you jump down and look at verse 25, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And he describes him. My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. We see here that friendship requires a firm common ground. Good friends share things in common. Godly friends find that commonality in Jesus which creates a Christ-centered companionship. We need friends who want the same things we want, who are orienting our lives around the same things. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to see things exactly the same way. And please don't say, oh, okay, 
all right, pastor, I'm going to leave here and go break up with my friend and tell them I can't be friends with them anymore because they're just not in the same spiritual playing field that I'm on right now. Like, that is not what I'm saying, okay? So don't point to the sermon and say, you can go listen to it on the podcast. He said that I need friends who are companions with me in my pursuit of Jesus, and you're just not there right now. Like, no, don't, don't end those friendships. But we do need people who have common ground with us in Christ. Those are the friends that will help us look more and more like Jesus. That doesn't mean you can't be friends with a non-believer at all. It just means that the most important, most influential friendships in your lives should be those who share this bond of faith with Jesus. St. Augustine, he voiced a prayer that communicates this truth. He said, There can be no true friendship unless those who cling to each other are welded together by you in that love which is spread throughout our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. So biblical or true friendship, it needs to be and it's, it's best when it's centered on Christ. And we can both simultaneously be building one another up in Christ and living on the same mission. This is what Paul found with Timothy and Epaphroditus. So a question for us at the end here, am I basing my friendships on companionship in Christ or are my friends only those who have other lesser shared interests? The last thing we see is going to transition us to our final point where we focus on Christ. The final virtue that's probably the clearest in this passage is sacrifice. Sacrifice. So affection, compassion, faithfulness, companionship, finally sacrifice. Now if I were going to ask you to give me a list of virtues or characteristics that make for a good and godly friend, sacrifice probably wouldn't make an appearance on that list. We, we don't think of sacrifice as being an important or necessary quality in a good friend. However, if I was going to ask you to scan the Bible and give me a definition or a description of friendship based on what you find only in the Bible, there'd be no way you could give me a definition without including sacrifice. It's central to the Bible's idea of friendship. True friendship requires sacrificial love. And Paul highlights the sacrificial love of Epaphroditus' friendship with the Philippians. Look at verses 27 through 30. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. First of all, do you hear that friendship language there? Of how Paul realized if, if Epaphroditus dies, my sorrow is compounded. So God had mercy on me by sparing Epaphroditus. Okay, so anyway, he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now remember, Epaphroditus, most likely a member of the church at Philippi. When they decided they were going to send financial support to Paul, once they had learned of his imprisonment, Epaphroditus was either chosen or he volunteered to take their gift. They needed a messenger, they need, someone had to take it. And so Epaphroditus steps up and he decides, I'm going to make the journey. I'm going to go from Philippi to Rome and take this gift to Paul. 
Now, somewhere along the way, he becomes deathly ill. We don't know the nature of his sickness, but we do know whatever it was, it almost killed him. And yet, he did not abandon that mission at all. He didn't notice symptoms and then circle back to Philippi, rest up until he could make the journey later. He knew that his friend needed help, needed support. And he knew that his friends back home had entrusted him with this mission. And he saw it through. Literally, Paul says, risking his life for the good of Paul and for the mission of the church. What a friend. His sacrificial love, it takes me back to John 15, where Jesus teaches on friendship. And in that place, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. His words, just a few verses later, totally changes our status, where he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. And then, right after calling us his friends, Jesus commands that his disciples love one another. So, okay, here we go. Greater love has no one than this, and they lay down their life for their friends. Right after that, you're not my servants anymore. You are my friends. And then right after that, love one another. The connection's pretty clear. Love in its highest and greatest form was demonstrated through Jesus' self-sacrificial death on our behalf. And so, the love that we display to one another through our friendships must also be characterized by self-sacrifice. And I know we don't like that. We're creatures of comfort. We, we, we don't like relationships that demand a whole lot from us. We want our friendships to be really nice and easy and pleasant and not require a whole lot of us. We rarely take risks or make sacrifices for other people. But then at the same time, we wonder why we don't have deep friendships. If you want the kind of friendship that increases your joy, you have to be prepared to live a sacrificial life. And please get out of your head, you know, oh, someone give me a mission so I can almost die. Like, that's, we almost would prefer that to, you know, maybe I'll have to cancel my plans this weekend just to go hang out with my friend. I swear we would. We, we, we would rather be given just this like life-altering, risking journey where it's like, you know, I might make it. If I make it, when I get back, it'll be the Lord and the Lord only. Then to cancel our plans this weekend to, to prioritize a, a buddy. That's the type of ordinary sacrifice that friendship actually requires of us, though. I don't really... A friend calls, texts you, hey, could you, could you talk to me real quick? Man, it's the last thing I want to do. I'm exhausted. I've had a long day. I'm going to fall asleep and pretend I didn't see the message. I'm the only one that does that. I'm sorry. You may have to sacrifice certain comforts, certain rhythms that you have for your friends. But don't, don't think that this is just an out there thing. This is at the heart of what friendship is. And this is at the heart of Jesus' friendship with us. While it is a great blessing, an unbelievable blessing, 
friendship remains and will always be a risky endeavor. We're going to have to look to serve rather than be served, which means that it's possible that we might not be served in the ways that we hope. So you might go out there with a friend and truly sacrifice for them. Something, you know, you sacrifice something so that you can serve them in some way. And then they don't do the same thing for you. That's possible. Friendship is, is, is risky. So a question for us here at the end. Am I willing to sacrifice my own comfort for the good of my friends? And I hope you're motivated by the paradigm of friendship, which we turn to now. Jesus set the ultimate path or pattern or paradigm for friendship. We learn friendship with others from Jesus. And two things about Jesus and friendship we need to see before we go. First, Jesus is a friend to us. And second, Jesus calls us his friends. Jesus is a friend to us. It's, it, it blows my mind every time I consider it. Because while we're tempted to think that family relationships are stronger than, than friendships, you know, it's like, well, you're not just a friend, you're a brother. You know, it's like Jesus, he has come as our elder brother and all that. Look, look you may or may not be friends with your siblings. Friendship is often deeper than brotherhood or sisterhood in some ways. Jesus is a friend to us, which means God doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't just tolerate us. He doesn't just let us in the door. It's like Jesus, he sends Jesus to die for our sins. Oh, that guy, did he trust in you? Is he, we, oh, okay. That's okay. Good. That's great. That's awesome. He can be saved too, I guess. He isn't just a judge who, who says innocent, pardoned, and then, yeah, come on in, I guess. Mm-mm. He is a friend. He welcomes us. He befriends us. Through the gospel, we have friendship with God. We have an eternity of friendship awaiting us. Jesus is the great friend of sinners. Remember John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Days after that, Jesus lived out this truth. He voluntarily gave his own life to bring undeserving people like you and me into friendship with God. Jesus exemplifies the friendship virtues that we saw in this passage. He is affectionate toward us. He is compassionate toward us like no one else. He is faithful to us no matter what. And he unites us to himself in a companionship that we could never duplicate. And he gave his life for us. Jesus chooses to be a friend to us on the basis of his grace and his love, not on the basis of our merits. Jesus is a friend to us, not just a Lord, not just a Savior. But second, Jesus calls us his friends. Friendship is a two-way street. Jesus isn't just a friend to us. He calls us his friends. John 15, 14 through 15, again, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. This is an invitation to share and participate in the heart of Jesus. It's an invitation to draw near, to come close, 
Jesus doesn't just do friendly things for us. It's not just that he is a good friend to us and that we receive the benefits of his virtue. Jesus enters into a relationship with us. How does it change the way you think about Jesus when you realize he hasn't just come as a savior or lord or even brother, but he has come as a friend? Jesus is your friend. Listen, you don't have to be friends with every single member of this church. You don't have to be. That's not realistic. But you should be a friend to anyone in this church. You should, you should open yourself up to friendship with anyone in this church. And you should have friends, not just in this church, but you should have friends in this church. Your joy will be greatly increased if you do the risky, hard work of making friends with others in our midst. And in order to do that, you need to keep a few things in mind. First, as you've seen, you'll need to put on the character of a friend. I've given you a picture of that. Second, you'll need to take something off. You'll need to put off your idealistic expectations of friendship. You, you, may, you, you may actually have a wonderful friendship with someone right now, but you don't know it and you can't see it because you have unrealistic, idealistic expectations of what friendship actually is. And this person who is really affectionate toward you and cares deeply about you and is willing to sacrifice for you isn't living up to what you have in your mind of what friendship is. And so they actually are a great friend, but you can't see it. That's possible. So we need to lay aside these, these lofty and unrealistic expectations we have of friendship. And finally, you will need patience and perseverance. Your friends aren't Jesus. They'll never be Jesus so don't expect them to be. They will fail you, and you will fail them. You'll be a bad friend, and they will be a bad friend. And you'll have to be patient with them, and you'll have to persevere. Maybe you feel like you don't have any friends. Pursue those relationships. You'll need patience. You'll need perseverance. But every ounce of effort you put into friendship will not only be for your joy, but it will be for the joy of others and the glory of God, which is why C.S. Lewis once wrote, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the chief happiness of life. And you may not be feeling that right now. And after seeing the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus and ultimately Jesus you may not think you can be a friend worth having. But, and I want to invite the worship team to start making their way up. I need you to remember something. You were made for friendship. And to be friends with another person is to live up to your created purpose. You will find meaning and purpose and happiness that you thought just impossible through friendship. And to be friends with another person requires you to embody certain virtues, the virtues of Jesus himself, affection, compassion, faithfulness, companionship, and sacrifice. And remember, too, when all else fails and you feel utterly alone, remember that Jesus is your friend and he will never fail you. And he will never leave you and he will never abandon you. He is a friend in good times and bad. He is a friend to you when you are faithful to him. He is a friend to you when you are faithless to him. 
He cares about you when you feel few others do. He is committed to you no matter how far you stray. And he has given his life to make you his friend. Rejoice in his friendship today and strive to multiply it in your life.